well, hey, this is Eric. I'm one of the ministers at Regency. I just wanted to thank you for checking out this message. We're praying that God uses this message to draw your heart closer to Him. If you're ever in the Mobile area, we want to invite you to join us for worship on Sundays at 10 a.m. If you'd like to find out more information about Regency or to check out some other resources, visit our website at regencycc.org. So, so I remember when I turned uh, 16, my parents bought me a, a pickup truck to drive. It was a 1996 Nissan pickup. This is not the exact truck. I don't have a picture of the exact truck that I had. The one that I had was a little darker gray than this one is, uh, but it looked a lot like this. It was a single cab pickup truck, so you could have, you know, like one and a half people in it comfortably, uh, which is probably a smart decision from my parents. And it, it was a stick shift. I don't know if you know what a stick shift is. I got a picture of it. That's a stick shift. I saw this week a meme that said it was a millennial anti-theft device, which I'm a little offended by as an older millennial because I do know how to drive a stick shift. And I'm real appreciative that my parents required me to learn how to drive on a stick shift. What this means for those who are younger that have no idea what they're looking at, when you got in a car, instead of just putting it from P to D, you actually had to change the gears yourself, and you had to follow this little pattern. And occasionally when you're going to third, you'd miss and go into fifth gear, and it, it, you know, it wouldn't break it, but it was not great. Uh, but you had to actually shift the gears yourself. And I'm thankful for that for a couple of reasons. One, it was impossible to text and drive, which I didn't text at that time anyways, but it's impossible. It was impossible to actually talk on the phone and drive at the same time. Because I remember a couple times I'd be talking, I'd be like, hold on, i got to shift gears, set the phone down, shift, all right, I'm back. Uh, and, and it also required me to pay attention to the vehicle, pay attention to the road, pay attention to people that are around me, because I was responsible for changing the gears. I had to pay attention to the transmission and the RPMs to know when I needed to shift, downshift or upshift. And I'm super thankful that, that I was... Uh, kind of forced to, to learn how to drive on a stick shift. Well, that idea of changing gears is really important. It's important in a lot of aspects of life. And as we're going through this book of Ephesians, this letter that Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, a series that we've been calling Created for Good, it's important for us to recognize when Paul's going to change gears. And he's about to. We're at the end of chapter 3 today. And next week we'll pick up at the beginning of chapter 4. But in chapter 4, Paul changes gears. What he's been talking about in the first three chapters is our identity, who we are in Jesus. And so he talks about what it means to be blessed in Christ. We're forgiven. We're adopted. We're chosen. We've been predestined. Uh, all these different ideas that he's communicating. He says we are his workmanship. We've been created for good works, his masterpiece. We were dead, but now we're alive. All the language that Paul's been using up until this point, he's trying to get us to understand who we are and what it means to live in the Messiah Jesus. And it's so important that we recognize that because as he shifts gears into chapter 4, if we don't pay attention, then we might just miss what he's talking about. Well, in his letter, at the beginning, sort of the beginning of chapter 3, and then at the, excuse me, the beginning of chapter 1, and the end of chapter 3, he brackets them together with two prayers. The first prayer, we've already studied it, was a prayer where Paul Paul wants us to have what he calls an apocalypse, a revelation. It just means he wants us to become aware of what God is doing around us. And what he's going to pray today, or what we're going to study today that he prays, he's actually praying for us as a family. He wants us to be 
together. He's praying for us as a family that we would understand what it means for Christ to dwell in our hearts, to experience the surpassing love of Christ, and to live to the glory of God. This is his prayer. Let's dive in. Ephesians chapter 3, if you've got your Bible, we'll start in verse 14. It'll also be up on the screen. For this reason. Now, if you remember last week, Andrew started out his lesson at the beginning of chapter 3 where Paul says those exact same words, for this reason. And, and then he kind of has like this ADD moment where he gets off course and he's like, oh, hold on. I've got to tell you about the open secret that's been revealed in Christ Jesus. And Andrew talked about that last week. And so now he comes back. He comes back to his train of thought. He's like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Here we go. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named that according to the riches of his glory... He may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do abundantly, far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power that is at work within us to him be honor and glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Wow, what a prayer. I wish we had days and days to unpack, but we've got just a short amount of time, so let's get to work. Paul, first off, prays for us as a family. I really hope you don't miss the family dynamics of what he's talking about here. He says his heavenly family and his earthly family. God is all about family. When you open up to the first pages of your Bible, you read about God creating a family. He creates Adam and Eve and they're in the garden and he's living with them. And his desire is to be with his creation. But God's not only surrounded by his earthly family, he's surrounded by his heavenly family. Here's what Psalm 89 says, starting in verse 5. Let the heavens praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones. For who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord? A great God uh, to be feared in the counsel of his holy ones and awesome above all who are around him. He is surrounded by family, his heavenly family, his earthly family. And as Paul prays for us, I really hope we don't miss the importance of the family that Paul calls the church. It's so important that we get this. Every time you read through the letter of Ephesians and you read the word you, it's always plural. Really, we need to read the word y'all. And so what he's talking about here as he's praying for the family is that we're all a part of this family of God. We're called to grow together, together. We're called to serve together. It's all connected together. So everything that Paul says, don't read it as an individual. Read it as a collective group because Paul wants us to understand the value of what it means to be a part of the family of God. And for Paul, being a part of the church was not just about coming to a place for an hour or two a week to spend time in worship. That was part of it, but that's not the whole. I, I wonder how many times if Paul walked into our gatherings and he saw kind of what we do and what we're about, I kind of wonder what he'd say. What would the letter to Regency look like? Would he be like, whoa, you got part of it, but church is so much more than that. It's so much more important. I hope we understand the value of community. That's what he's trying to convey here as he's praying for us in this heavenly and earthly family. You see, for Paul, this open secret that Andrew talked about last week, that secret that had been revealed from ages past, it's now been 
uh, it's now, it was concealed in ages past. It's now been revealed in Christ Jesus. Do you remember what the answer to the riddle was? What's the big secret? It's the church. What God has been doing throughout all time is to make the church. And for some people, their reaction would be like, that's it? That, that's what God has been hiding for all of time? But when you truly understand what Paul means by church, oh man, what a, what a secret. What, what, a, what Paul says is the manifold wisdom of God on display. It absolutely is. Because it's, it's much more than just a group of people coming together and singing songs. What church is all about is about when a, a black person and a white person come together in the unity of Christ. What church is about is when a Republican and a Democrat accept one another and make room for different views and serve together and love each other. That's what church is about. What church is about is when a rich person and a poor person share their resources together so that no one is struggling. For Paul, that is what the church is about. And it's all throughout his letters. It's all through the letter of Ephesians. It's all through Galatians. It's all through Colossians. That's the secret. That's what brings glory to God and speaks to the world. When a group of homogenous people who all act like one another and talk like one another and vote like one another and believe like one another, when those groups of people come together, that doesn't shout to the world. It's exactly what the world expects. But when you gather together and receive as family and you gather around tables together and love each other and consider one another family with people who otherwise you would never talk to, people who otherwise you would never agree with, in fact, some who you could, who you could potentially have distaste for, but you receive each other and love each other as family because of Jesus, that is what Paul says is church. That is the value of family. And I hope you don't miss it because there are aspects and and dimensions of God's love that you will never experience if you're not a part of the church. It's why you need a life group. It's why you need a Bible class. It's why you need the fellowship that takes place before and after the services. What we're doing here, don't get me wrong, right now is important. It's incredibly important. But what happened just before we got started and what's going to happen after we got started is vitally important too. It's why you need the church. You need the family of God. Folks, the family of God needs you. As we're coming out of COVID where for so many of us for a while, church was something that was reduced down to something we watched on a screen. Oh, we need the family of God. This is what Paul is praying for. He's praying for us as a family. And I hope you can hear through his prayer. He's pleading with us. If you think church is just about an hour on a Sunday, oh, no. If you think it's just about a group of people who are only like one another, no, that's not it. If you think it's about a group of people who only accept people that are just like them, no, it's not it. That doesn't shout to the world what we're called to be. That speaks to the world. Well, he's praying for us as a church so that Christ would dwell in our hearts. Don't miss the communal aspect of this because what could happen is we could read it individually. It's up to me that Christ would dwell in my heart, but it's plural. It's our hearts because Christ is called to dwell in all of us and we help each other along the way so that Christ can dwell in our hearts. Now that word dwell is really interesting. When I think about that, I think about like a house. And imagine your heart is a house. 
And there's a passage in, in Revelation where it says that Jesus is standing at the door and he's knocking. Can you imagine? He's at the door of your heart and he's knocking. And Revelation says that if you will open the door and receive him in, he will come in and he will dine with you. And so the idea is that Jesus wants to dwell in your heart, but he's not a squatter. He's not just going to break the door down. He's not going to come and live illegally. He's not going to not pay the rent and then never leave. He's going to come in only if you allow him to, and he's only going to stay as long as you want him there. The moment you say, that's it, I want you gone, he packs up and he leaves. He's not a squatter, but he wants to dwell in your heart. And here's the important thing. If you miss this, you'll misunderstand what Paul is talking about in, verses, in chapters 4 and 5. This idea of Christ dwelling in our hearts is so important because it's bringing to faith a relationship aspect. He doesn't want us to read in chapters 4 and 5 what he's going to talk about as a list of laws, a list of things to do and don't do. He wants us to read it as a description of what it looks like to live as a new humanity, as a redeemed creation as a part of this group of people that God is calling out of darkness into light, that are going to live with him for all of eternity, he wants us to, to read it as if we were living just like Jesus instead of a list of things i got to do and don't do. Could you imagine if we approach dating and marriage the way that sometimes we approach the laws of God, where sometimes we see the laws of God as obligation, things we have to do that are burdensome? Can you imagine if we approach dating and marriage that way? Oh, it's her birthday again. i got to go buy something. This is ridiculous. I already did that last year. Why do I have to do it again? Valentine's again? Come on. It was made up by candy and card companies. That's all they want is me to go buy money. We just had an anniversary, you know, like our dating anniversary and then our engagement anniversary and our wedding anniversary. It's like nothing but anniversaries and birthday. And then Friday night, guess what? i gotta, I got to take her out to dinner. If I don't take her out to dinner, she is not going to be happy, and I don't want to... I don't want to be around her if she's not happy. Could you imagine if we approach marriage and dating that way? Because that's kind of how we approach God sometimes. <laughs> Got to go to church again. God's at me. He's going to cause bad things to happen to me if I don't give, if I don't go to church, if I don't do something nice for somebody else. Sometimes our hearts are that hardened. And we miss the point. Here's the deal. If that's how you approach marriage and dating, guess what? You won't be dating or married for very long or very much longer. If that's how you approach your relationship with God, then let me just be honest with you, folks. Christ is not dwelling in your heart. You can deceive yourself. You can lie to yourself. You can go to as many church services as you want to. But if, if that's our attitude, he's not there. And here's the scary truth. If Christ is not dwelling in your heart, then people will not see him in your life. They won't. Because what people see from us is simply an overflow of what's in our heart. And if they're not seeing Jesus, maybe it's because he's not there. Paul's praying, open the door of your heart. Let him in. He's not going to barge in. And he's not going to stay longer than you want him to. I believe it's a daily prayer. Jesus, please dwell in my heart today. It's part of what he's praying. Well, he's praying that because if Christ is dwelling in our hearts, then the next thing that he prays about is that we will experience the surpassing love of Christ. That's a really cool phrase. Some translations say to grasp the, the 
surpassing love of Christ, the width and length and height and depth of the love of Christ. That's a weird word to grasp. It actually means to aggressively take down. So what my mind reverts to is I think of like a, someone tackling someone else. I think of like a football team and somebody tackling the ball carrier. But again, this is about a communal effort. He's not just writing to me. He's writing to us. And so could you imagine us aggressively taking down the love of God, trying to wrap our arms around it. I picture like in a football game, if you've been watching it, especially on TV, and there were four or five defenders that all tackled the ball carrier, and the commentator may say something like, they gang tackled the ball carrier. That's the idea. So can you imagine we gather together on Sundays, and we kind of huddle up. That's sort of what we're doing. We're huddling up, and we're game planning. How can we aggressively take down and grab hold of the surpassing love of Christ? Now that's hard, because he says it's surpassing. That means to throw beyond. It means it's out of our reach. Just when I think I've got my arms around it, it's more than I could ever imagine. It's greater. Paul talks about the width and length and height and depth. Like It's constantly growing. When you think you've got a handle on it, it it'll blow your mind. That's what he talks about at the end of his prayer. And so can we game plan of this week? How can we together as a collective group, how can we aggressively grab hold of the love of Christ and experience it in a different way? How can we experience his love? That's part of why we are gathering together, is one, to experience it, but two, to game plan this week, how can we experience the love of Christ? That's part of why we're here. It's part of what we should be doing, experiencing it together. Because for Paul, love was the most important. He writes a lot about faith and hope. In fact, he's going to write in 1 Corinthians 13 that they're two of the three greatest of all things, But they're not the greatest because they're temporary. Faith and hope are going to pass away. You're not going to have faith when you're in the presence of God. You're not going to have to have hope when you're in the presence of God. They're temporary, but love is eternal. Love will never go away, which is why it is the greatest of all. Paul mentions the word love over 100 times in the letters that he writes, 15 times alone in the letter to the Ephesians. If he mentions it that much, I think we'd have to say it's important to him. And he's praying for us to experience, to aggressively grab hold as much as we possibly can the love of God. Could you imagine trying to wrap our arms around a giant sequoia tree? Just you individually. Walk up to a giant sequoia and just try to hug it. You couldn't do it. You couldn't come close. But maybe maybe if we had a group, we could. We could link hands and we could wrap around and we could... We could surround this giant tree. That's the idea. We're hand in hand trying to surround and grab hold of the love of God. And just as soon as we think we got it, it goes past us again. It surpasses our minds. It blows our minds. Because that's exactly what Paul said it would do. He's praying for you to experience the love of God, the love of Christ, in new ways. In ways you never have on a regular basis. I don't care if you've been a Christian for seven days or 70 years. You should be experiencing the love of Christ in different ways on a regular basis. It's a result of Christ dwelling in your heart. Why? According to Paul, does he pray all this? Well, it's for the glory of God. It's almost like as he's writing or dictating this letter, however he's doing it, and he's crafting it together, like there's this one line. We call it a doxology. It's just an overflow of praise. It's like his heart is overwhelmed as he's getting through and he's like, and just in case you think you've got your mind wrapped around it, no, he's going to do 
to him who will do abundantly beyond so much more than you could ever imagine or think or even think to ask to him be the honor and the glory. He's just overflowing with praise in his prayer because for Paul, it's all about the glory of God. It's all about us as a community of believers bringing glory to God. And folks, we do that when we gather together and we sing praises and we study God's word. We spend time in communion together. We bring glory and honor to God. But we also do that when we gather together in supernatural unity. And all I mean by that is above the normal, that we're united together when really we shouldn't be. There's so many things that should divide us and could divide us. But we push those aside because of Jesus and we're all brought together by the blood of Christ. When we do that and we receive each other as family, that is to the glory of God. When Christ dwells in our hearts and we open the door of our heart and say, come on in Jesus, take up residence, don't take the guest bedroom, take the master bedroom, take over my life, take over our lives, take over our church, and we do that, it's to the glory of God. When we try to wrap our minds around the love of God and we begin to experience it together and it breeds excitement because we're experiencing something different and the, the love of God is just blowing our minds from the things that God is doing and the way that we're seeing him move and work in, our, in, in and around us and in our lives and in our church. Folks, that's to the glory of God. It's all to the glory of God. This is what Paul prays for. He's praying for us as a family that Christ would dwell in our hearts, that we would experience the surpassing love all to the glory of God. What a prayer. If you've never become a Christian, wow, I just want to tell you, you are missing the greatest life possible. I don't have the words. I can't explain to you what you're missing. Yeah, it's forgiveness that you're missing, yes. It's new life in Christ that you're missing. It's being a part of the family of God that you're missing. It's Christ dwelling in your heart and Him reshaping your heart into a new person. You're missing gathering together with a group of Christians to experience the love of Christ in new ways. You're missing all of these things that God has in store for you. And all you have to do Say yes. He's at the door of your life and he's knocking. He says, if you'll just open it up, I'll come in and dwell with you. You just have to say yes. If you're ready to put Christ on in baptism, to answer his knocking on your heart with a yes, we're ready to help you with that. One of the greatest events in history that brings glory to God. It prompts celebration in heaven is a person who is far from God coming back to him. If you're a believer in Christ, you've been baptized, but your heart has strayed from him, and, and you have to honestly say, I, I don't think Christ is dwelling in my heart right now because I don't see him in my life. Well, he's still at the door of your heart as well. And all you have to do is open it up, and he will come back into your life. And we'd love to encourage you with that, to pray with you and to pray over you, to walk with you, if you'd rather do that privately after the service with somebody, we'd love to talk with you in whatever way. If it happens at your, right where you're sitting and you just have a moment of personal rededication, just don't forget, it's to the glory of God. So if we can encourage you in any way, publicly or privately, 
uh, we'd love to do that. We're going to sing a song. Let's stand together and sing.